Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything started into hum. Still, it's a real good bet, the best is yet to come. Best is yet to come, and babe, won't that be fine? You think you've seen the sun, but you ain't seen it shine. Wait till the warm-up's underway. Wait till our lips have met. Wait till you see that sunshine day You ain't seen nothing yet This is is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, That, of course, uh, is the velvet voice, the dulcet tones of the great Frank Sinatra. I've always been a uh, big Frank Sinatra fan, literally my entire life. And I think, and I got into this a little bit with my, uh, in my discussion with Doug McIntyre last week, and when we talked about his book, Frank's Shadow, there's just something about the music of Frank Sinatra that is timeless. There are so many great singers, so many great bands, so many great performers that are perfect for their era, but they don't necessarily have the staying power. Their songs don't necessarily resonate with audiences 20, 30, 40, 50 years after those songs were recorded. And to think that someone like Sinatra has so many of those songs that do that is really, I think, an extraordinary thing. Then you look at his work as an actor, which, because he's such a phenomenal musician, I think often gets uh, overshadowed. His work as an actor is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you watch a picture like The Manchurian Candidate, for incident, for incident. Uh, for instance, it is absolutely terrific, and it still holds up today, influenced a lot of cinema that came after it. And then you look at the life Frank Sinatra led when he wasn't performing, that's perhaps even more interesting than any of that. And uh, I have gotten, lately, I, I got into a, a debate with two of my neighbors lately because they were what I'll call Sinatra skeptics. Uh, Sinatra naysayers may be a more apt term, and I'm a bit of a contrarian by nature, So the fact that they were kind of Sinatra doubters, it has made me even more enthusiastically pro-Sinatra. So tonight, I'm supposed to go to this dinner that is a discussion 
of all things related to Frank Sinatra and the era in which he lived. And I am, there's people there that were friends with Frank Sinatra, that knew Frank Sinatra, and I am going to be by far the least knowledgeable person with the least firsthand experiences with Frank Sinatra. So I thought to myself two things. One, let me find a guy that knew Sinatra as well as anybody at least got a ringside seat for some of the things that Sinatra was doing for 13 years. And maybe I'll, I'll get a tidbit or two of uh, things that can make me sound like I know what I'm talking about at this dinner. But I also thought with uh, this debate where you have candidates calling climate change a hoax and calling one another names and trying to get 90 second quirky answers out before a doorbell rings where you have, uh, you know, leaders of paramilitary military militia groups being killed in all likelihood in Russia, where you have former presidents and former mayors being indicted. It's all just so heavy. It's all so much. I could use a little bit of a break, and I can't think of anybody who can be the antidote to the present news cycle as well as give me a few answers to sound like I know what I'm talking about at this dinner tonight, then Tom Dreesen. I absolutely love Tom Dreesen. Not only is he incredibly funny, but he is a gifted storyteller, whether he's telling the stories on the radio, on a stage, or in the print page. He is a legendary stand-up comic and the author of a terrific book, which I've read, and I've had a lot of friends that have read, and they all love it. It's called Still Standing. Tom Dreesen, welcome back to the program. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Hey, quick question. I, I got two settings on this phone. Am I coming in loud and clear on this? You sound good to me. Yeah, you sound good to me. We'll 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 stick with it until uh, until it craps out on us. Okay, because I can do I know I can do two two settings real quickly, but I just wanted to make sure that you could hear me real clear on this setting. You sound great to me. Uh, so, Tom, give okay. me a give me a tip at this dinner when I'm going to be with all these Sinatra contemporaries uh, tonight that I can actually sound like I know something about Sinatra. Give me a, a Sinatra tidbit that only somebody on the inside, like you were when you were his opening act for 13 years, would actually know. Uh, you know, there's so many th- things I could tell you, Frank. First of all, are you sitting at a dinner with people who actually knew Frank, who met him once or twice? Because there's very few people alive today who actually knew him, you know, that really knew him. I mean, it's people like, oh, yeah, he came in my restaurant. And, uh, no, I, I met him one time with my brother-in-law. And, you know, but they, they, there's a lot of people who are students of his that have read a lot about his life from different authors, but even those authors didn't know Frank, you know, personally, they knew him um, professionally, you know, uh, and, and maybe saw well, I'll send you some of the names off air, and you could tell me what their true level of uh, of knowledge w- with uh, with Frank was. So uh, I'll ask you about that off air. You do this okay, great. Um, oh, but so give me a tidbit. Give me give me a, a, a bit of Sinatra trivia that only someone on the inside like you would have known. Well, I mean, I, I you know I do a one man show called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. It's ninety minutes. It's it's stand up comedy, but it's storytelling about my journey. Uh, the title of my book is still standing. The subtitle is my journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra. So in that one man show, I tell a lot of stories about Frank about and funny stories and poignant stories, but there's, there's um, so much has been written about him. I don't know that I give you any, you know, toward the end of his life. Let, let me digress a minute. When I first went on tour with Frank Sinatra, he was the boss of this tour. 
of this magnificent tour we were doing in 45, 50 cities a year in front of 20,000 seat arenas in, in Hawaii, 40,000. So he was the boss, and that's how I treated him. He later, as time went by, became a friend, and we, we hung out for a cliche to the least small hours of the morning. Toward the end of his life, he became more like a father to me. And he gave me advice, you know, as, you know, as, as, toward the end of that. So, so I knew him in, in those different categories. Uh, the, the, everybody knows about the benevolence of Frank Sinatra. They know of things he did, but maybe why he did them. And I'll tell you something personal. First, I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'll tell you something that a lot of people may, may not have known about him. But it, it's in New York, and I told you this story once before, Frank. In New York, we were coming out of Waldorf Astoria one night on our way to a gig. And we went out the back entrance because if you went out the front, Frank would be mobbed. And as we, the security was taking us to the limousine, rushing us to the limousine, a woman jumped out of the doorway and she started screaming, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, please. And the security was holding her back and he was getting in the limo and she kept hollering, please, Mr. Sinatra. So he came back out of the limo and he, he told the security, leave her alone. He walked up. He said, what is it, ma'am? She said, my husband is home sick. He's terribly ill. And if I could get an autograph from you, it, it would be, mean the world to him because he's very, very ill. And Frank said, sure. And he's signing the autograph. And she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. He said, thank you. And he signed the autograph. And the cufflinks were well over $1,000. I know where he got them at. They were very special cufflinks. He said, thank you. And he took the cufflinks off and he handed them to her. He said, give these to your husband. She said, oh, no, no, I don't want them. I just was admiring them. He said, no, I want your husband to have these. And we got back in the limo and I said to him, Frank, that was beautiful. Why did you do that? He said, tell me if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses mm. you. I love that story. And, I love that story. Well, I, I, I never forgot that he said, because he said, Tommy, see that shirt you have on your back if you die tomorrow. It belongs to somebody else. Nothing we have is ours. We're only using it. Aristotle Onassis, he told me, he said, Aristotle Onassis had billions of dollars. He had private jets. He had private yachts and mansions. And the second he died, it all transferred. So nothing we have is ours. You know. Now, that was something that really, really meant a lot to me. But the, the more I got to know Frank, the more I realized that he was an avid reader when he was younger. And when I stayed at his compound down in Rancho Mirage, Frank never went to bed till the sun came up, whether we were on the road or off the road. Uh, if we were on the, on the road, he stayed up. To the, after the shows, he, you know, we'd sit around a restaurant or wherever or in a tavern. And when the sun came up, Frank went to bed. When I stayed at his compound, he did the same thing. But he would ask me sometimes, he'd come to my bungalow and say, come on, Tommy, let's take a ride. And we'd go riding around the desert down in uh, Rancho Mirage in the Palm Springs area, we'd go right around until the sun came up. Many of those nights, we would get in long conversations, and, and I'm an avid reader, and I'm also a, a motivation speaker. I, I give talks on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And I elaborate on those four points. This is the inside tip that, that people would know. There was a book that really affected Frank Sinatra. It was called The Magnificent Obsession by Lloyd C. Douglas. And he brought this up with me one night. And its predecessor, the book, was called Dr. Hudson's Secret Journal. And they made a movie out of The Magnificent Obsession. And Rock Hudson played the lead. But in the book, The Magnificent Obsession, it's a, 
uh, it tells you that if you the secret of success is if you want to become a success and you pray for that, you say, I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a lawyer, or I want to be a comedian, or I want to be a singer. If you really um, want that, the, the, in, in the book, it said that ask and you shall receive, you know, and so if you really believe that, then, you know, once you ask your master and say, I want to be a singer, or I want to be a comedian or whatever it is you want to be, then you have to believe with all your heart and soul that that's going to happen because ask and you shall receive. But once you ask, then from that point on, you have to believe that you're going to receive. Your dream is going to come true. Your prayers are going to be answered. But you have to then keep your eyes and ears open for one of those less fortunate children. And you have to help them, whatever their problem is, hunger or whatever, but you help them privately and quietly so they don't know that you did it. You know, so if you do that, within 30 days, your master will reward you towards your endeavor. Now, uh, he not only talked that talk, but he walked that talk. It's, it's actually biblical in nature it's, it, it's, um, that you must, you must never brag about what you're doing for others. You, in fact, the way, as I explained, to do it is so that they don't know that you did it. Now, if you have to do something for them that you can't avoid them knowing, then you have to swear them to secrecy and tell them that I will do this for you, but you must not tell anyone and you can't pay me back, pay it forward. Uh, and again, I go back to this is biblical. And if there are people listening tonight and if you can remember the, the saying, it's, it's, it's from uh, the, the New Testament. It said, when you are praying, do not behave like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in synagogues or on street corners in order to be noticed. I give you my word, they are already repaid. Whenever you pray, go into your room, close your door, and pray to your father in private. Then your father, who sees what no man sees, will repay you. Mm. So and it said, but, and if you're going to do something, it said, when you give alms, for example, do not blow a horn before you in synagogues and streets like hypocrites looking for applause. You can be sure of this much. They are already repaid. In giving alms, you are not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Keep your deeds of mercy a secret, and your father who sees the secret will repay you. Now, Frank Sinatra lived that. He, he read that as a young man, and he believed that, and that's what he did his whole life. And that's why he was so rewarded. First of all, he was gifted with this great voice, but he still worked very, very hard, and he was repaid for everything that, that he did. And he was so generous beyond your imagination. You will never, ever know all the magnificent deeds he did because he didn't want anyone to know. Now, that that's just so you can tell your friends, you know. God, I, I love that. that. That's great. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, with Tom Dreesen, legendary stand-up comedian, author of uh, a terrific book called Still Standing. He also does a, a live stage show called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. If you want to learn more about Tom or pick up the book, you can go to his website, TomDreesen.com. That's D-R-E-E-S-E-N.com. So, Tom, you've, you've been referred to, rightly so, as the man who made Sinatra laugh. Do you remember in the 13 or 14 years that you spent working with one another what the biggest laugh that you ever got from Sinatra was, whether it was something that was a result of one of your jokes or just something that you did between the two of you or whether it was you slipping on a banana peel? Do you remember what it was that you did that got you his biggest guffaw ever? 
Well, I, I can remember so many things. By the way, every night when I, we were performing, uh, especially in the casinos, that he would stay, stand in the wings uh, waiting for, uh, to come on, and he would stand behind and listen to my show. And he always liked when I did some new material, he would, and it's one of the reasons he kept me all those years because we went to the same cities and the same venues year in and year out, and so he needed a comedian who could keep changing his material. But I'll tell you one time, and I do it in my one-man show, and I have the video of him laughing and pounding the table and putting his head down and laughing, and you see him saying, that's funny. Now, what it was, was, like, he was getting an award here in L.A., the Will Rogers Award for all of his good deeds, right? Now, the Will Rogers, for your listening audience who may not know who Will Rogers was, he was a famous comedian in, in the 30s, and uh, he, he died in a plane crash. But he also was a wonderful man who said, his fam- they always remember, he said, I never met a man I didn't like. You know, Will Rogers said he never met a man he didn't like. And now Frank Sinatra's getting this award, this for charity, and he's tongue-in-cheek. Now, at the reception prior to it at the Beverly Hills Hotel, <laughs> people were whispering, Frank Sinatra's getting an award. He never met a man he didn't like, you know, because, you know, Frank was this guy who, who could be volatile, you know. So they were all talking, whispering, Frank Sinatra's getting an award. He never met a man he didn't like. Now. When I got up in front of this whole audience and the cameras on Frank, I said, Frank Sinatra punched every man Will Rogers ever liked. <laughs> That's very good. I can see why that uh, engendered oh, he, a reaction. Frank, he roared. He roared. He laughed. It's on a film. And so when, I, when I'm doing my one-man show, you see me saying that and you see him just la- And everybody in the room is laughing and applauding. Another night I made him laugh. It was like... We've been on the road doing one-nighters uh, all over the country, and then we flew into Las Vegas, and we opened at the Desert Inn, and we did two shows that night. Now it's 4.30 in the morning, and I'm tired. I'm really tired. I want to go to bed, but he's going strong. There's about four or five of us sitting around the table way in the back uh, of the restaurant at the Desert Inn. Um, I could see it's another all-nighter. We're going to be there until the sun comes up. But about 4.30 in the morning, I just said, that's it. I got up, and I said to go. He said, hey, hey, where are you going? I said, I'm going to bed. He said, what for? I said, I got to get up early in the morning and go to the cemetery and visit those guys. He said, what guys? I said, all those guys who died trying to stay with you every night. <laughs> and and he, he roared at that. He thought that was so funny. And he said, go to bed. And then he'd make me tell that story all the time. You know? I can imagine. That's pretty I, good. I tell you, go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I tell you why I love making him laugh. Obviously, his nickname was Old Blue Eyes, but he had the bluest eyes that I've ever seen on a human being. They, on the private jet, sometimes we'd be going somewhere. He'd be sitting across and the light would be coming in from the plane, from the light into the window, and his eyes were like crystal blue. But when you made him laugh, they, his eyes lit up. They absolutely lit up, you know, and so I love making him laugh, you know. Uh, no, I can absolutely see why. Obviously, Sinatra is one of these larger-than-life entertainers. He's dead now uh, 25 years. You have a, a pretty successful entertainment career having nothing to do with Frank Sinatra. You were doing stand-up before you and Frank Sinatra worked with one another. You've written a terrific book. You've been in great movies, including one of my all-time favorite comedies, Spaceballs. You're, um, you're, you're a big deal having nothing to do with Sinatra. Do you ever get tired 
of talking about Frank Sinatra. I'm sure you get asked about Frank Sinatra every day, and I can see somebody that has accomplished so many different things in so many different areas. That might be a little frustrating at times. Do you ever feel like you're living in Frank's shadow? Oh, no question about it. And I knew that when I started touring with him. And I always tell this story that at one time we were um, flying into, we'd been on, on the road and we were flying, I think it was New Orleans, we were coming back, we were flying in this private jet into Palm Springs. Now the plane would land there, and then he, if I was staying there, uh, I, we'd get off there. But the plane always returned back to Van Nuys, California. And I live in Sherman Oaks, which is right next to Van Nuys. So sometimes I would fly back on the private jet, you know, uh, and Frank would get off there. So this particular night, which was a Thursday night, we landed, and Frank said to me, oh, you're staying with me this weekend? I said, no, I've got to go back into L.A. and do the Tonight Show. He said, I'll call Fred Dakota. I'll get you out of it. I said, no, I don't want to. I don't want to get out of it. It's like my 50th appearance on the Tonight Show, and and uh, they're making a big deal out of it. So Frank said, I said when I told him that, he said, "Wow, uh, 50 times." He said, "Is that a record?" Uh, I said, "For comedians." He said, "I said no, uh, Rodney Dangerfield and, and um, David Benner maybe did more than me, but um, but it doesn't matter, Frank." I said, "No matter what I do from this day forward, no matter what I've accomplished in my career." My obituary is going to say the comedian who toured with Frank Sinatra. And he said to me, well, maybe my obituary will say the singer who toured with Tom Dreesen. And we both started laughing so hard that he kept saying what? And I, that was such a, a ridiculous thing, a, a, a ludicrous thing to say that we both thought we just kept laughing. However, it's come to pass. And I know that, that, that I knew that was going to happen. My manager, when I was first started touring with Frank, he said, Tom, stay with him six months. And then you got to move on because you can never become a star in the shadow of such a great star. But I didn't care. I didn't. I, I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in a lifetime when I was touring with Frank because every time that, that was offered to me, it would mean I'd have to quit touring with him. And I was having the time of my life. Oh, I Frank. can imagine. Uh, I can imagine. And it, it, you know, being being in his presence, I, I sang Susan Taverns when I was a little boy, and he was on all the jukeboxes. If somebody would have told me that one day, you hear that guy in the jukebox, one day, you hear him saying, come fly with me, you're going to fly with him all over the world. You're going to stay in his home. Uh, he's going to, you know, uh, you know, become a, a dear friend to you. you know? I, I'll tell you, one time I was running a marathon for multiple sclerosis, and my sister Darlene had MS, and I, so I called it 26 miles for Darlene. And, and people pledged money for every mile. I run in all proceeds with the, the, for the cure of MS. And... CNN was going to interview me. It was the first time I ran three marathons, but this was the first one. And so they came with the cameras and everything. And the guys were getting ready. We're getting ready to start the marathon here. Tom Friesen's running his first marathon. Tom, I'm standing here. I, I want to ask you something, Tom. Tell us about Frank Sinatra. <laughs> 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 and, so it's, and, and, you, and you know what? It doesn't bother me because I loved him. I mean, I was a Paul Barrett's funeral, and I spoke at his funeral, and I miss him every day of my life. So, no, uh, it, it will never offend That's me. That's wonderful. I'm honored, I'm honored to have graced the same stage with him. But I say this all the time. I never cared whether CBS, ABC, NBC, I never cared if they loved me or not. I never cared if the film industry loved that Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, I performed with all of them, but Frank the longest, that they thought I was good enough 
to be on the same stage with them. You can close the coffin on me now. I, I mean, that, that means more to me than anything else. You've been performing as a comedian since the late 1960s. And I, one of the things about comedy is that it certainly evolves over time. It's difficult to imagine Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd having a large TikTok following that apply, that appeals to the kind of people that are, that are uh, looking for comedy on TikTok. How has your material evolved over time to connect with different generations? Or are you doing the same jokes in 2023 that you were doing in 1973? No, I, I change my material all the time, and I work on new material. When I was doing the Tonight Show, when you did the Tonight Show, you had to come up with a new five minutes every time that you did it. Uh, so I then I, I did sixty-one appearances on the Tonight Show, so I kept coming up with new material, and I keep doing that to this day. I go to the Laugh Factory uh, or the Comedy Store here in L.A. or the Improvisation. And, and there's another place called the Comedy Chateau. And I get up on those days. I, I go down weekends when I'm off the road, and I, and I try out new material. And now they film me. I used to take my tape recorder. But those clubs now will film you, and they'll give you the film. So when you're working on new material, they'll they'll send it to you on the computer with a link, you know. So uh, I, I still love coming up with new material. And also in those audiences, when I go to the comedy store, this is my 53rd year as being a comedian, my 50. No, this is my 54th year. Wow. You might have a future in this business, Tom. Yeah, I'll keep trying until I get it right. But when I go in front of those audiences, there's young black, young white, young uh, young Asian, young Latino in the audience. And so my material still resonates with them because I'm always coming up with, you know, know, fresh material, whatever is happening in my life, you know. The uh, you've performed in every possible type of venue that you can imagine, small clubs to massive arenas. You performed in a wide range of, of venues. Is there any specific type of audience or setting that you find most invigorating? Do you prefer a small smoke filled saloon or do you prefer a, a giant, uh, a giant arena the size of Madison Square Garden? Well, I, obviously, the bigger the audience, the bigger the laughs. You know, so that, you know, if, if you ask me, if, if I did twenty minutes, say I did twenty-five minutes of material tomorrow night at the comedy store here in L.A. or the Laugh Factory, and in front of one hundred and fifty or two hundred people, if I did that same exact twenty-five minutes in an arena of twenty thousand people, like opening for Frank or something, that same material takes on a totally different dynamic uh, because it's all about timing them. And, and, uh, and, and if, if you, it's hard to describe timing. Uh, you either have it or you don't, you know, but it's knowing when, when to move on the next line, how big the laugh is. You never move on the next line when the laugh is on its way up. You wait till that laugh is on its way down. And, and some nights you let it go all the way down and some nights you let it go halfway down. But the audience helps you set your timing, you know, uh, the audience laughter. So the bigger the arena, I mean, the greater the experience, you know, uh, and, and especially opening for Frank, that you could turn that audience, you could get that audience and set them up for him. They didn't, you know, I, I think I told you this once before, Frank, but I'll give you an idea what it was like opening for Frank Sinatra. Say we're at the Nassau Coliseum and there's, there's um, 20,000 people out there. And Frank, you're getting ready to open for Frank Sinatra. And I say to you, Frank, I say, Frank, it's five minutes before you're going on. I want you to go out there and I want you to stand in the middle of that arena, Frank, 
Uh, they're all around you. They're behind you. They're on your left. They're on your right. They're in front of you. It's not proscenium. You're in the, in the round. I say, Frank, I want you to go out there. And for the next 25 minutes, I want you to hold their attention. Uh, there's 20,000 people. Oh, one more thing, Frank. I want you to hold their attention, but I want you to make them laugh for the next 25 minutes. Oh, one more thing, Frank. I want you to make them laugh when you want them to laugh. <laughs> I want you to pull the strings on the emotions of 20,000 people. Uh, no props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no orchestra, nothing. Just you and 20,000 people. And one more thing, Frank, not one of them came to see you. That's what it was like opening the Frank Sinatra. I, I, I can't imagine. It's got to be one of the most uh, intimidating things in uh, that one can do in entertainment. We've been talking with uh, with Tom Dreesen. I hope you will uh, check out his book, Still Standing. It is still terrific. And if you get the opportunity uh, to do so, you definitely want to check out his uh, his one-man show, The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. Learn more about it all at TomDreesen.com. Tom, it's always a treat to have you. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Anytime, Frank. I really enjoy talking to you. I really do. Thanks so much. Same here. Thank you, Tom Dreesen. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're certainly welcome to. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.